Very thankful to be here tonight. First, I'd like to thank Kent for the prayer on my behalf and for praying for me twice. Uh, I really appreciated that because my nerves are a little a little higher tonight for whatever reason. But as it's been said, we're going to be studying Acts chapter 12 this evening. And as I began to study this chapter, I quickly began to notice uh, parallels in this chapter with what we see going on uh, today in our country and in our world. And, uh, you know, uh, I know everybody has their own interpretation and they see different things, but uh, I just couldn't help but to be reminded of of the things we're seeing today. Uh, As we look over this chapter, you'll see that uh, obviously... At this point, the Christians were extremely unpopular. Uh, you have a tyrant, a Jewish king, who is looking for popularity among the Jews. A lot of unrest. Uh, and so I, I hope that uh, the message that I have this evening, I don't want it to be one of despair, fear, but of hope. And that's the theme I l- hope to bring out uh, as we study tonight. So let's begin with Acts 12, chapter uh, chapter 12, verses 1, and we'll read through verse 4. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex a certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he knew, and because he knew it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then there were days. Then there were the days of the unleavened bread, or the Passover. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four. Karen, I promise I tried this word. Corin, quarter, I, I'm just going to pass on. Of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. You know, when I first read this and, and the killing of James, my first question was probably uh, the same as some of the disciples, and that is why. Uh, I tend to get not really, not really focused on the timeline, it kind of felt like to me James didn't have a whole lot of time uh, to to really preach and uh, and, uh, and convert people, and I wonder if that was really the thought that uh, if there was a thought that God would be protecting James and allow him to keep preaching instead of really allow him to become a martyr in this case, and it's it's evident too that God had allowed their lives uh, to be spared to this point, and the church was just exploding and and was going to continue to grow uh, by number and trying to put my mind into this situation seeing all the things that had started to happen at the first of this uh, chapter and and what the church had experienced at that point I'm sure that losing one of the 12 one of the original 12 apostles was a was a tough thing or a devastating thing for the church and I know part of me wants to be like well you know there there were faithful people Nothing could bring them down, but it, they were still humans. And I think that losing James in this fashion, him being one of the twelve, him being one of Christ's uh, closest friends, was was definitely put a dark cloud over the church and the disciples. But Jesus had prepared the disciples for this persecution. Let's look at Matthew ten, and we'll read verses sixteen through twenty. Matthew ten verses sixteen through twenty. Behold, I send you forth and. As a sheep in the midst of wolves, be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in the synagogues, and they shall, and ye shall be brought before the governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought of how ye shall speak, for when it, 
for it shall be given to you at the, at the same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not me that, that, for it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh unto you. And also in verse 28 of the same chapter, it says, Fear not them which kill the body, but, which are, uh, but, are, able, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear them which is able to destroy both body and soul, both soul and body in hell. And I would imagine that these words rang true to James as he was preaching the gospel. And, to, and they were always in the heart of James as he, as he preached. Christ said, I send you forth as a sheep in the midst of wolves. That just sends a chill down my spine every time I read it. The disciples knew what they were up against. Herod's persecution was only the tip of the iceberg when it came to the overreach that was happening and would continue to happen to the church. But these men were bold, and these men feared nothing but God. And it's because of what Christ said in this passage and in other, in other instances, James took, uh, James took that with him wherever he went. And you know, in our world, we see fear all around us coming from all different angles. Fear is a very motivating emotion. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God has given us the tools to combat fear. And I can't help but draw parallels with, with everything that we're seeing, especially the things that have taken off this year. But as Christians, we need to remember verses like these. We cannot live in fear. It seems that the things that we're letting into our minds are not the right things. And as I said before, God's given us the tools, and, and that's his word. You know, we need to be in tune with the truth, and our spirit will be able to, to discern what to tune out and what to let in. We need to tune out things that are based in fear. If that headline or that video or whatever invokes fear, turn it off. The spirit of fear has been defeated by Christ when he was crucified on the cross. We do not let fear, we don't need to let fear have access to us. Proverbs 29 and verse 25 says, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. <clears throat> we see it all around the world, and sadly very powerful people in the world use fear to manipulate people by twisting the truth. And we see this very thing going on today and what the product of fear combined with the lack of God and what, what the product of that is. It's lawlessness. It's directionless. And we need to be more in tune with what God says and very little of what the media has to say. Social media, TV, paper, wherever you get it, we need to turn it off if it invokes fear. <clears throat> you know, what we see in the news is really not an accurate representation of what's going on. You know, I'm in the mindset of believing that there are still a lot of good people in this world. But we do not see that when we turn on the TV or when we look at Facebook. <clears throat> because it gives us a false sense of reality. It really does. Especially on social media. You know, Christians in the first century church, they were one of the most, if not the most, persecuted and oppressed people in the world. And what did Christ say to them? What did Christ say to the disciples? Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You know what he's really saying? In godly wisdom, love. 
Love your fellow man. And that's something that's so lacking in this world today. <clears throat> and as we've studied Acts, it's, it's easy for me anyway to think about what's, all, what's happened. And, and I'm kind of shifting gears here, I'm sorry. But we've, as I've studied, as we've studied uh, Acts, it's easy for me to immediately kind of think, well, you know, Christ was crucified, the church was established, bam, 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 they're, they're preaching the gospel, the church is growing. But over Acts, this really happened over the course of 30 plus years. And uh, so James likely had about eight to ten years of, of being a devoted servant to Christ. He was able to teach and convert people for many years. <clears throat> and I know we have a lot to talk about in this chapter, but I don't want to get too far into James, but I think it's really important to, to study James. There's not a whole lot that we, that we know about him. Uh, he's not mentioned very much in the Bible. But James was considered to be part of Christ's inner circle. And uh, if you wanted to think of it like that, it was him and John and, and Simon Peter. He was able to witness things that some of the other apostles were not, were not uh, able to. He was there for the transfiguration. He was there for Christ as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was the brother of John. And the two of them, in the Bible, it, it refers to them as the Sons of Thunder. And you don't get that nickname without, uh, for no reason. Let's look at Luke 9, verses 51 uh, through 56. Luke, 59, or Luke 9, 51 through 56. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples... And, and when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from the heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? And he turned to them and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner or of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life but to save them. And they went to another village. So as we can see here, James and John were really fiery guys. And... It said that the Samaritans didn't receive Christ because he set, his face was set for Jerusalem. And I don't know really how you want to interpret that, but James and John were ready to strike these people down. They were ready to set fire to them. But he re, Christ redirected that passion. And no doubt he taught James and John, like he teaches us, that we need to be passionate about saving souls, not about retribution, not about... Scolding somebody on Facebook. I would have to surmise, too, that James's fiery spirit might be part of the reason for his untimely death. In Acts 7, but though we read of Stephen and his boldness in preaching to the council and the high priest, he called them stiff-necked, uncircumcised, and murderers, and he was killed for it. But at the end of chapter 7, he asked God not to lay that sin to their charge. And we go back to James, I think over his years of preaching, his love for fellow man only grew. And that time where he wanted to strike down these people was a distant memory. He remembered what Christ, I'm sure that he remembered what Christ had told him in that moment. But the boldness of this, these men, <clears throat> the boldness that these men had was something I don't think we can even begin to comprehend 
You know, I've never been, I've never had to preach under the threat of death, and I would say that yet that is still uh, not yet a major threat in this country. But today we see political leaders only concerned about making decisions that they think are popular, just like Herod did, instead of the moral one. And we see Herod actively and intentionally punishing the church. And they had just seen what James and now what, what, had, it, what had happened to James and now Peter's in custody. I would say that things, you know, for the church were looking pretty bleak at this point. Let's continue in Acts 12 and we'll start, uh, start back up in verse 5. Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have... And when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands, and the angel said unto him, Guard thyself up, bind and bind on thy sandals. And so did, and he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee and follow me. First thing I'd like to notice here is, is that a prayer was offered up on Peter's behalf. I believe that obviously played an important role in, in Peter's release. It says that prayer was made without ceasing. Other translations refer to it as earnest or constant prayer. And that word constant or without ceasing in Strong's means to extend or stretch forth and that word is also similar to a passage in Luke 22 and verse 44 where Jesus is praying and it said that he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as, was, was as great drops of blood. So Christ's agonizing prayer in the garden was likened to that of which the church prayed on Peter's behalf and prayed for his relief. And this has really honestly made me reconsider my prayer life. You know, all too often it seems that we almost pray with the attitude of praying for things that God uh, that God cares about or should care about when we ourselves don't necessarily care about those things. Earnest prayer has power not only because it may or may not persuade God to change the outcome, but instead it demonstrates that our heart cares passionately about the things that God cares about. You know, talk is cheap, but action is expensive. And there's, there's people that we come into contact with, and they like to talk a lot, but they, they do not back it up with their actions. Can we back up our prayer life? And I've never really thought about it in, the, in that way. But, or are our words cheap? Are the things that we're offering to God in our prayer meaningless because we don't believe them? I think I've been guilty of that. <clears throat> John 15, verse 7 through 9 says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. This goes back to the idea of, do we really care about the things we pray for? If you abide in my words, then in and my words are in you, then your prayers will be heard. That's what God said. That's what Christ said. We have to tune out the things that don't matter, right? Let's focus on Christ. What does Christ want? 
What does he care about? And you know, this, this concept really is kind of difficult. When it comes to prayer, it's difficult for me to articulate sometimes, but... Sorry, I lost my place. But I believe that this is the attitude that, that the church had when they were praying for Peter's release here. They truly cared and believed in that power they had through prayer. And I think sometimes it might be lost on us because we don't live in a time, you know, where miracles are performed and maybe it's hard for us to see as the world continues to turn how much our prayer or earnest prayer can make a difference. But it can. Miracles or not, the power of earnest prayer is alive and well today. I think I've made way too, myself, I think I've made too many assumptions that the things are just going to happen and there's really nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to change it. But that couldn't be further from the truth. We know of instances in our lives, we see examples in the Bible of where, of where prayers were answered and where, where things were changed. Christ, the most powerful man to ever walk the earth, sometimes his prayers weren't answered. They were heard. Sometimes he didn't like the answer. And that's what we need to remember is that if we have the Spirit of God, if we truly care about the things that we, that we pray for, if we're earnest and faithful, then a sovereign God hears our prayers. But ultimately, His will will be accomplished. Prayer is a mystery. Why do we pray when God knows our needs? And it's that so, we'll, that, so that we will recognize that we're totally dependent on Him. Before we move on, I can't help but notice the, the little detail where it says that uh, an angel smote Peter on the side to wake him up. And, you know, we can interpret that in different ways, but that tells me that Peter was sleeping. He might have been fast asleep in prison. So much so that the angel had to, you know, kick him and say, get up. And that's interesting to me because in light of the circumstances, I think that it, for me, it'd be a difficult time to be sleeping. Uh, Peter had just seen what happened to James. He knew that that was likely to be his fate very soon. He obviously knew that God could rescue him, but from this situation, he knew the reality of what happened to James. It's very obvious, though, that Peter had no signs of anxiety of how all this would play out. It's another great example of faith. Let's move on to Acts 12, verses 9. And he went out and followed him, and wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but saw it, but thought he saw it in a vision. When they were past the first and second ward, they came to the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to him of his, of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through the street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter came, has, was come to himself, he said, no, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. A few other things to consider here. One, it appears is that Peter might have been in a trance or uh, in a subconscious state of mind as he passes through uh, the prison and through the city. 
he finally comes to a clear state of thinking and realizes that, that it was an angel that had, had released him from prison. And again, he comes to the house of Mary, and they're still praying. And as I studied this chapter, it made me realize that a lot of time has been spent in prayer to God. And I'll go back to our previous discussion. These people put so much faith in the power of prayer. And it really made, again, it made me think in, about how I should approach prayer differently. I believe that this is a really big theme in this chapter that, might, that could be overlooked. But as things seem to be falling apart around the disciples and the church, they're praying. And we can see over the course of history that when bad things happen, people often turn to faith. People turn to God. They become more fervent and, and persistent uh, uh, in meditation on spiritual things and in prayer. And we can look today and see how more than ever in this world, people need Jesus. People need something. You know, anytime I see a new headline or whatever, I, I, or, uh, you know, news of another riot or protest or whatever, I just think about how directionless all this is and, and meaningless and how broken some of these people are. You know, when I was a kid, I, I often felt like in the secular realm that there's a pretty fine line between good and evil. Uh, and I know that was through the lens and innocence of a child as well. But even when I was in high school, I don't, I don't feel like the lines were as blurred as they are today, I guess. And uh, especially with God out of the picture, there are people looking for answers. And they don't know because, there's, because God has practically been surgically removed out of, out of the fiber of this country. You know, one side says that they stand on morals and what's right and what's fair and what's just. Oh, wait, the other side is saying the same thing. They have different policies, but they're saying, they're saying that we're right, we're fair, we're just. This is the moral thing to do. The problem is both sides have all but left Jesus behind in all of this. And it's the truth. And I'm afraid that we get way too wrapped up in these political affiliations and just go along with our side and, and we fail to consider what Jesus has to say. And I'll give you an example. There's an article, a headline, about three weeks ago. And it said, man beaten in viral video requests leniency for attacker. Now, I'm, I'm going, not going to go into a lot of detail here, but my first reaction to this, well, I'll back up. There was a video prior to this of, of an attack. And pretty much it's... it's it is what it is. It's an attack. One guy's beating another guy to a pulp. Video went viral. Narrative was spun. Okay, it's another day living in 2020 in America. And I didn't let it occupy my mind very much, but then I saw this headline. 
And uh, my first reaction to this was probably with the majority is, why in the world is this guy showing this other guy mercy? Why is he showing the attacker mercy? And then I remembered, I believe it was right after Acts 7. And uh, before I get to that, I'm going to tell you, the leniency that this man showed was that he, he said he, he didn't want to go to court. He reached a plea agreement, basically, that dictated that this felony charge against his attacker, which, by the way, was an assault with intent to do bodily harm, it would be dropped from his record if he completes his sentence. Keep in mind, too, his attacker is 17 or 18 years old. I'm sure that this guy did not want to see this kid's life ruined over one mistake. And this agreement ensures that if this teen, it ensures that this teen will not have a felony record if he completes the sentence. The sentence is a minimum year probation or maximum 10 years in prison. Likely he's looking at a year or two of prison time, maybe even just probation. So again, my first reaction to this was with the majority. I thought, why is he showing this guy mercy? And then I remembered what Stephen did in Acts 7. He wanted forgiveness for the men who put him to death. Stephen did. Christ did the same. Imagine if we all showed that type of mercy and forgiveness for our fellow man. And I'll be honest, I, I don't. You know, people are worried about the election, people are worried about rights, they're worried about the virus, they're worried about religious freedom being taken away, and all these concerns inherently force us to pick a side. Is it going to be conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, whatever? Whose side are you on? You know what? I want to be on Christ's side. And we've had sermons about, sermons about this issue. You know, there are things that conservatives stand for that fly right in the face of what Christ said. We need to be careful. We need to be careful with who we are putting our faith in. And, and that's another problem I see is that we're putting way too much faith in, in men to solve an issue. And I'm going to be honest, our president cannot save this country. And if we elect another one, he's not going to either. It's only Christ. And in that spirit of 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 the example that, that we see that Christ showed in this world. You know, and that's the thing, is that we're way, the truth is, is we're comfortable. We're comfortable living in our bubble. We're comfortable, you know, just uh, picking a side, waving our flag, living a good life. But, you know, these Christians in the first century church, they were bold. They were fervent. They were deeply devoted. They couldn't afford to not be. And it's because the, the survival of the church in that time depended on these people to be deeply devoted. And, you know, I'm afraid that for years it's been way too easy for Christians just, just to take it easy, to sit on the sidelines. But I think that time is over. The survival of the church, the survival of this church, depends on every single person in this building tonight.
And the reason I think it's over is, you know, I think we're all familiar with, with what happened in California after all these social distancing guidelines came out. Uh, the governor said basically there, there should be no singing or chanting in the church services. And based off everything else that we see and everything else that they're allowing, it's very obvious that this was a very pointed and deliberate attack on the church and on churches specifically. And I bring all that up to say that a fight might and may and probably will be coming to us. No longer will Christians be able to sit on the sidelines and, and just pick their lane and live a good life. One day, this church may be faced with exactly something like that, or even worse. We need to prepare ourselves. <clears throat> Let's continue in Acts 12, verses uh, 13. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken, named Rhonda. And when she knew Peter's voice, he opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told Peter, and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. And they, and they, and they, then said they, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he beckoning unto them with the with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord hath brought him out of prison. And he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into, an, into another place. So this is an interesting exchange here with Peter and some of the, the other disciples. You know, what I thought was interesting is that it said that they thought it was Peter's angel. Uh, that's the way I interpreted it to be y'all can correct me if I'm wrong but it's almost like they believe that it could have been Peter's guardian angel of some kind I did a little bit of research and found that the Jews might have believed in in something like this that you know that people had guardian angels assigned to them and that they might bear their resemblance to the human they're assigned to I don't for obvious reasons I didn't dive deep on angels uh, for this chapter study but this is the last time that we see Peter in Acts, except for a brief mention in uh, chapter 15. The second to last time, really, that he's mentioned in the New Testament, uh, except unless you want to count uh, his two letters that he wrote. But he tells the brethren to report to James, uh, not the martyr James, but possibly, probably uh, James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, he departed, more than likely went uh, maybe into hiding for some time, maybe not, maybe to Antioch. Uh, in a way, we're kind of closing the book on, on Peter tonight. Little's known of what happened to him in the latter portion of Acts. We do know that he and Paul ended up in Rome. Uh, it's believed to be around this, the rule of Nero. Uh, historians believe he was crucified in Rome, upside down, around the same time uh, of the Great Fire. And if you're familiar with that, that's when Nero basically blamed uh, the Christians for, for burning Rome destroying Rome. Um, Acts 12, verses 18 through 23. Now, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. And when Herod had sought after him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they be put to death. And he went down from Judea and Caesarea in their abode. And he, Herod was highly displeased with him from for, with them from Tyre of Tyre and Sidon, but they came, but they came with one accord to him, and having made 
Blastus, the king of Chamberlain, their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. And they and set upon, and upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat down, sat upon his throne, and made an oration unto them. And the people gave shouts, saying, It is the voice of God, not of man. And immediately an angel smote the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. And I did a, li- a little more research with Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian, and he said it was, they believed that, that he eaten of worms, that it was actually a tapeworm that ate him from the inside out. And he, it was a very violent and sudden pain in his stomach. Five days later, he died. Uh, But something that's so interesting to me about, about Herod being, you know, he was the king, he was the Jewish king, and he should have, I don't know, it just seems like they never learned, but he should have known about how God deals with situations like this. Jesus Christ or not, he knew how God felt about these things, or he should have known. And it just goes to show how far the Jews had fallen away from God. Surely he knew the multiple stories of, of God humbling kings and, and emperors. And, you know, it had not gone well for, for other people. It's just, uh, but eventually God struck down a, a, this powerful and prideful man. Let's read in Psalms 2, verses 1 through 4. Psalms 2, verses 1 through 4. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. In this chapter, chapter we see mingled together the wickedness of an evil tyrant, that being Herod, and, the so- and also the sovereignty of God. And God, who had allowed, really, Herod to operate on a leash, so to speak. And, you know, we see in our world evil all around us, and it seems that it's getting closer and closer to, to our doorstep. You know, we see people that are running this country that I, I, I see as evil tyrants as well. But it... You know, it could be a grave error for anybody to think that God's still not in control of these situations. And that's the, the main point that we see in, these, in the scriptures that we're reading here. That's what we need to remember. And I love this chapter or this passage in uh, Psalms because it paints such a vivid picture of the world around us and the pride of man and uh, the, the lack of or the, the perceived lack or not needing God in their, in their life. But it says, the Lord laughs at all this. He laughs at these evil leaders. In other translations, it says that he scoffs. And it, he says he holds them in derision or holds them in contempt. No wicked act is done apart from the sovereignty of God. God will judge evil people in the last day. And that goes back to fear. I mean, if we're having an eternal perspective, we know that God will judge us along with all of the evil that we see in this world. You know, there are days that might come that are much worse 
than what we're seeing right now. But at the end of the day, God is in control and Christ is king. At the beginning of Acts 12, we have James dead, Peter in prison, and a tyrant basking in, in his popularity with the Jews. And at the end, we have Peter free and Herod eating, uh, being eaten of worms and, and dead. No man is too powerful. No situation is too hopeless. And, you know, that is, uh, that's a reality that's always, that's, that's a reality that's always been there, even though we, uh, we don't acknowledge it. God is in control. And, you know, people say, well, that's just the way of the world. That's just reality. The sovereignty of God is another, another reality that we all too often forget. At the end of the day, God is still God. Let's look at Acts 12, uh, 24 through the end of the chapter. But the, word of the God, but the word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. And speaking of the power of God, the gospel we see here is not going to be stopped by opposition. And we see the, the contrast of how bad things really, really looked at the first of the chapter to now. And there's, we see there's victory through God. There's victory through obedience in God. There's victory through earnest and, and uh, constant prayer to Christ. <clears throat> you know, Herod and the Jews opposed Christ and eventually met their judgment. Most of the apostles and disciples in the early church, in the early church suffered much, uh, much more than we can ever comprehend. You know, many met the same fate as Stephen and James and Peter, but the word of God continued to grow. And God's going to award them in heaven. No matter what they went through, no matter what we will go through in this life, if we're faithful to God, we'll be rewarded. We don't have to worry about the wickedness that we see in the world because we know God is sovereign and God will judge Whether or not we live, whether or not we live, whether we live without ever being persecuted, or if we die in our faith, or because of our faith, we have to commit ourselves wholly to Him and to spreading His gospel. We need to be a light in the dark world. That's all I have prepared for this evening. I appreciate uh, the kind attention. I hope that anything I something I said would be will be beneficial to everyone here you can take forward in this in this coming week. We never like to close without offering an invitation. If there's one that needs the prayers of the church that is that needs direction, needs Christ, we ask that you would come. Or if there's one that has been taught and wishes to be baptized, we ask that you either one would come as we stand and sing the song of invitation.